talk about power over the next five weeks because our culture's been talking about it and indirectly we're talking about it a lot. And we want to talk about today the power of sin. Then we want to talk next week about the power of the Holy Spirit in us, the, Holy, the power of the Spirit through us, but also the power of our own emotions and our thoughts. Because here's what is true. You can give your life to Jesus, and that's an incredible step that you can take, but you can remain throughout the rest of your life a saved person, but incredibly emotionally immature, and that also causes issues. And so we want to grow up in every way to be more like Jesus. And so we want to look at all of this together. And over the past two years, we've used our strength at Life Center to lead with two aims that we believe from the Holy Spirit are we trusting we're trusting we're from the Holy Spirit and that is to gather everybody safely and then point us all to be more like Jesus and today is no exception because to be more like Jesus to be called Christians to be followers of Christ is to trust what Jesus said not just about heaven but about how to live on earth how to live our lives, how to live with one another, how to live in conflict, and how to live in even divisive times like we find ourselves. So I hope today all of us feel uncomfortable regardless of our various positions, which we're allowed to have difference around. You know, like, I want you to think about a grandfather clock, and if you don't know what a grandfather clock is, that's good Google homework for you later, but I want you to, that was a joke, but I want you to, if you want to think about a grandfather clock, it has this beautiful pendulum that swings to one side, and then it swings all the way to the other side, and it's society. Society works that way, church can work that way, change can work that way, and it's not always the most beneficial, but it's just generally how things tend to work. And so over the past 20 years or so, the church has been speaking about the power to follow Jesus like a journey or like an adventure or a walk with God. And that's rich and there is much truth in that and there is so much to glean and to learn and to understand. So on the one hand, it's a really good description, a walk, a journey, an adventure to follow Jesus. But I also want you to know that it's, it's not a complete definition because your following Jesus and my following Jesus is not just Jesus and me. How many of you know that we interact with other people? And not only do we interact with other people, but there are principalities and powers and there's own sin in our flesh and there's a real devil. There's a real devil, not a mythical, not a mythical creature, a real devil that influences our lives and the world and systems and structures in which we live. So following Jesus is not only a walk or an adventure, it is also a battle. Now it's never a battle against you or against others, but it is warring against oftentimes the things sinfully that I desire to do or sinful things that others do that impact my own heart and life. And how many of you would agree that, a, that, that the power to go on a little walk is very different than the power to fight a battle? And so some people embrace this, battle, this power of the Holy Spirit to go on a walk with Jesus, and that's beautiful. But you're ignoring the power of the Spirit to fight a battle in order to win. Again, not against others, but against the flesh, the world, and the systems of the world, and the enemy in which we live, which we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. And so the biblical perspective is, yes, we see the branches, so to speak. We see the end result of sin or the symptoms of sin, and they matter. But Jesus spoke that we should care not just about the branches, but go right to the root issues. To show us the presence of sin, not just in others, though it's easy to see there, but show it in us. Pastor Lori, what yeah, would you yeah, say about right. that? 
Yeah, yeah. Let's start with what Jesus said about sin. And we're going to start reading from John 8. If you do have your Bibles and you want to open them up, if not, you can follow along on the screen. If you're online, we're going to start at verse 31. And so in a conversation that Jesus is having with a group of people, he is talking about truth and freedom and sin. This is what Jesus says. He says, if you continue in my word, Another translation says, if you abide in my word, abide meaning to root in for, for the word of God to be in you and you in it. If you abide in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, sin is first and foremost an assault on truth, not just truth as said by other people, not just my own truth, but an assault on truth that comes from the word of God, an assault on God's truth. And Jesus describes our following him like a walk or a journey, as Jason just said, but it's trusting that he is ultimately trustworthy to lead us into truth. And that's the place where we need to root ourselves in order to truly have the truth revealed. Now, what's so interesting about this conversation that's happening in John 8 is the people immediately interpret his words as something external. They actually rebut and they say to him, but we've never been enslaved to anybody. How is it that you can talk to us about we will become free? The truth will set you free. They believe they're already free. They believe he's talking about something that's happening on the outside, an external or societal or a social kind of situation. But Jesus is actually addressing something that's happening inside of them. And what Jesus says to them is anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the truth is, we're all slaves to something. The Bible actually describes it like this. It says, either we're a slave to righteousness or we're a slave to sin. And so there is this surrendering over our will, either to the ways of the spirit or to the ways of the flesh. And the deception is believing that we can be our own masters, therefore enslaved to nothing. This is a deception that the enemy loves for us to believe. And so Jesus paints this very powerful picture in this um, text in John 8. And he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son is a son forever. And so what the people don't realize, and I think sometimes what we don't realize, is that when we choose the way of Jesus, the invitation that Jesus is inviting us into is to submit to him as our master. There's that language again, slave and master. If Jesus is our master, then we technically are the slave. We don't love this language, but this is the invitation. But then... What Jesus does is he restores us as sons and daughters. He adopts us into his family, into a forever position, a covenant, an inheritance of promised life after this one. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the rescue mission that we have been saved from the slavery of our sin. But Although when presented that way, it may seem like no, duh, obviously that's better. Being a son, being a daughter is better than being a slave. This actually is not an easy choice because every day we're confronted with the reality of wanting to be our own master, thinking we know better, we know better how to lead our lives. 
if only everybody else could see the world the way that I see the world. And just like the people of this day, we're obsessed with everything that's going on out here. We're obsessed with what's taking place in our story and our feeling and what other people are doing and what they're not doing. And this is a constant deception and distraction of the sin that actually so easily besets us in here in our heart space. True freedom is not actually taken from us from an external place. It's actually stolen from an internal place, from our very heart's place. Because you and I are specifically targeted based on our own personal desires that come from within us. The flesh, the war, the battle that you talked about in the beginning that happens inside of us. Every single day, the enemy of our soul invites us to take a different path, promising a false truth under this guise that it will lead to life. And this is what Jesus says about our spiritual enemy. We're going to continue reading in verse 43. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's word, and this is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. You see, M. Scott Peck rightly calls the devil a spirit of unreality, but his power is limited in our life. He can't actually make us do anything. We must choose to walk in this deception. And if the very nature of our enemy is to be a liar, the exact opposite is true about our God. His very nature is good, which means he's only capable of good in our lives. Now, what makes a good deception powerful is how it is mostly true, but not the whole truth. And the power of the cruelty of the way the enemy gets to us is he li- his lies play right into our deepest inner desires. Whenever we sin, we convince ourselves that giving into these desires are going to lead us to a place of happiness or fulfillment or something that we need. And even sometimes there is a momentary gratification, but eventually it wears off. Yet, we often find ourselves repeating the same behaviors again and again, hoping that maybe the next time it will actually do what we're hoping it's going to do. And in order to true to choose the way of life and truth, we actually have to put to death the desires of our flesh because only out of a place of death can come resurrection and new life. We see this in the very life of Jesus as he willingly laid his life down so that you and I could be set free from the power of sin. The Lord has been talking to me so much this year about discipline about how his loving discipline towards us is only for our good. Now, we need discipline both to walk in God's ways, to walk in the ways that he teaches us in his word, but also we need God's loving discipline to bring correction and realignment when we fall short. 
Now, God's discipline is not to be mistaken with punishment. You see, punishment is, the, is man's way of dealing with lawbreakers or sin. But often punishment is what we desire even more than the grace that Jesus offers because it's a way that we feel like we can pay back the wrongs that we have done. It's a way of actually taking what Jesus did on the cross and putting it back into our hands and saying, I want to earn my way back into good or right standing with God. But it's actually God's kindness that leads us to a place of repentance. And then he meets us with his immeasurable grace instead of the punishment that we deserve. And so whether in our sinful choices like anger or control or jealousy or even unhealthy habits like choosing comforts or leaning into indulgences in our life, which personally I would also say are sinful habits, There's a death that needs to happen in order for us to choose the way of life because these are the ways that are rooted into the inner desires of our flesh. But you know, as I've reflected on this, and if I'm really honest here today, this cycle can be so discouraging that as my inner desires come out, they lead to fleshly choices. That leads to then some momentary gratification But it leads me in the direction of exactly the opposite of the person I want to be and the exact opposite of the person that God has created me to be. And this cycle of sin is the enemy's plan for our lives. But there is an encouraging truth that is greater than even the frustration of this cycle. And that is that in my weakness, his grace is sufficient for me, and his power is actually made perfect through my very recognition and acceptance of this weakness. With the help of the Holy Spirit, when I'm honest and when I allow the loving discipline of the Father to lead me to repentance, I then can actually put to death to that which is not from God in my life. It's not what's happening out there that is going to destroy you. It's what is already at work in your inner life, in your heart and in your soul space that we must submit to God. Because it's in that place of confession and weakness where we're actually going to find our strength. And it's going to come through intimacy with the Father. And it's in that place that there actually is such a beautiful treasure for you and I as believers, a gift that God has for us in the midst of our weakness, a gift that God has to strengthen us in that place and actually take the very weaknesses that we have and use them for his glory. It is a place where true abundant life is found. Yeah. And so let's practically apply this uh, just to this cultural moment that you and I find ourselves living in and actually walking through. You know, I am so um, convicted in such a glorious and like, in such a beautiful way as I read the book of Acts. You know, looking at the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes we can think about it and we can see it in the people coming to Christ or the miracles that are being happening in the book of Acts. And that is absolutely true. 
But the presence of the Holy Spirit also empowered the early church, the first church, to work through intense division and conflict. The presence of God in them enabled them to actually not just survive it, but actually continue to grow through it. And they were a counterculture um, community to the world around them that actually the world began to look at them and said, there's a different spirit and a different power in you. Oh, doesn't your heart yearn for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our church, in our community, in our lives to be similar to this? The only way this happens is when he convicts us of another power power, which is the power of sin. A question that we have been, I am so sorry, but a question that we have been asking ourselves these past few years is, we're called Christians, we're called little Christs, we're called followers of Jesus. And the question I've been asking myself is, do I actually believe that what Jesus said about X, Y, or Z is true? Not just can I quote it or can I memorize it, do I believe it? Do I believe that it's true? Do I believe it's truth? Because if I don't believe it, I'm not going to trust it. I'm not going to walk in it. But if I do, then I will. So here's one of the things that Jesus said about division. He said this, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. Every kingdom. He didn't just say Rome, one kingdom. Every kingdom headed, divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or household can be divided against itself and not have a fall. It's not going to stand. It's not going to remain strong. It's going to be wobbly as its structure. Now, difference is absolutely okay. Seeing things different, voting differently, seeing things completely differently, that's absolutely okay. That's part of what it is to have some freedom. But division is never our friend. And so to normalize or to justify sin, we often befriend division, which sounds like the world would be better if everybody voted the same way I did. The world would be better if everybody did what I did. The world would be better if everybody saw this situation or this circumstance like I see the situation or circumstance. But the truth of God's word is, no, it is not how everyone would be conformed to your image. It is that all of us equally would be conformed to God's image. And this is the school of transformation they're in. And this is the, the, the place of discipline in love that Jesus is bringing me and he's bringing you. I'm not proud of some of the things in the last two years I've thought. I'm not proud of some of the things that I have felt. I'm not proud of some of my prejudices and my attitudes and the junk from the shadow place of my soul that surfaced. And I can give them a lot of names, but the Bible gives them one, sin. I'm not talking about you right now. I'm talking about me. The Bible calls them sin. And there's only one thing that I can do with sin, and that's to confess it, to repent to call it what it is and allow Jesus to heal me and touch my life. You know, when Lori and I first got married, we went through a teaching. I don't even remember where we, we went through it, but it was a very simple teaching. And the person who was talking about relationships basically said this, you need to make sure in your marriage that there is no scoreboard. And I thought to myself, that's great. We've never had a scoreboard. And then he described the scoreboard. I wash the dishes. You, one point for me. Right. I, I drove you here, one point for me. I did X, Y, Z, one point for me. And if you have a scoreboard in your relationship, the more points you get on your side, here's what's amazing that happens. The more points you get, you don't look at your points. You look at your points through the lens of what you're not doing. 
And we quickly realized, ah, if there's a scoreboard in our marriage, that actually means that we're opponents, that we're against one another, that there is some form of division that is going, and I'm on one team and you're on the other team, but the Bible says that we're one. That's right. Well, you know what the Bible also says? We're one in Christ. We're one in Christ. We're the body of Christ. And so again, the questions we have to ask ourselves is, how do I see my brother? How do I see my sister in this season? Do we have scoreboard? And I think sadly, the answer, my answer is, yeah. So I have to open my heart. Okay, Lord, you got to speak to my heart. And you got to deal with this. How is this playing out in the pandemic? How is this playing out in sexuality? How is this playing out in our relationships? How many of you know, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we all know the world is not what it should be. But yet, there are lots of different powers that collude in this moment, once again, to create a world in my image, or in this ethos or understanding, or this political perspective. And all of that may be helpful, but it's not the author of it. You know, when, one of the things I love to do is read. And sometimes when I don't understand what I'm reading, you know what I love to do? I love to listen to a podcast from the author. And the author says, oh, when I said that, this is what I meant. How many of you know that God is the author of life? And so you and I, to have authority, need to trust the author, what he speaks about truth and life and grace and all of these things. But if you pay attention to the world in which we find ourselves, the world isn't what it should be. And our only often solution is division. You hear it all the time in order to have any discussion. If we want to talk about life in the womb, we have to create a false dichotomy from the woman carrying the child. If we, we as cultures deem this life normal and healthy and this life normal and unhealthy or not healthy, so we sex select in the womb. We look at those with Down syndrome, for example, as less worthy than a healthy child. We divide educated from uneducated, left from right, Faith from science, all these false dichotomies to win points, but they wound people. You know, since the beginning of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, we've successfully now divided sex as a people from covenant to contract, from an overflow of a committed love to an expression of lust, to honoring one another as body, soul, and spirit, to hooking up with one another, treating people as products to try on who exist for our pleasure rather than they were created for a divine purpose. Now, again, this is not only a critique of the world in which we find ourselves. We as the capital C church, both Catholic and Protestant, have to bear the stain of sin in our role regarding sexual sin or sexual injustice, sexual crimes committed against boys and girls and women and men. Instead of being confessional, we as a church actually became experts in covering up and God is dealing with the sin in his church. You know, oftentimes, and this comes, I learned this from Pastor Barry years and years and years ago, when you sit down with a group of pastors, you can see how sin can actually even divide in the church. I want you to picture one circle right here in your mind, just one circle right here. Then I want you to picture another circle down there. You can go to any church in the world and you can do this, but only if you have authority to speak into it should you really do it. But 
circle number one and circle number two, and you can say to the church, now, okay, in what circle would you put the pastor, number one or number two, and where would you put the people? And some people go, man, I put the pastor in circle number one, and I put all the people in circle number two. But in Jesus' name, we kick that thing right in its nose. Why? Because the only person subscribed to circle number one should be Jesus. And then everybody else is in this circle, including ministers, because we're all ministers together. So again, even the division that we create in churches is sinful sometimes. I'm not talking about dishonoring a pastor or a minister or whatever, but how many of you know we are co-laborers together? Every single one of us is a minister of the gospel. This is the priesthood of all believers. So again, it's not just that the pastor is elevated to this place because that sometimes empowers sin. It empowers sin to thrive versus, no, no, we're all working this out. I love the criticism sometimes when I get called a sheep right now because that's exactly what the Bible calls me, a dumb sheep. And I I don't think there's any more perfect description than who I am as a dumb sheep because Jesus pulls me out of one. He no sooner pulls me out of one issue and I'm in another. Dumb sheep. Not you. You may be brilliant sheep. That's fine. Not this dumb sheep. I need a loving shepherd to lead me, to guide me, to correct me. Don't every single one of us. Yeah, I got to go faster. Sorry. Relationally, as the sin of pride leads to division, we may no longer see one another. You know what the Bible calls us? Brothers and sisters. You know one of the hardest things for us as parents sometimes? It's when our kids who are also followers of Jesus begin to grow up and we are both their parent. And you know what my kids now at the ages they are now? They are also my brother and sister in Christ. So I'm not the expert who knows everything. Sometimes I need to listen to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't like that sometimes. I'd rather be the expert. But it forces me into this place of humility that we can learn one from another. I love how Justin Gibney asks these questions. Are we more committed to proving someone else wrong than being truthful ourselves? Do we hate the lies of the other side, but we won't do without our own lies? Do we value winning a point for our side greater than cherishing a relationship? What did Jesus say? He said, I have a log in my eye and you have a speck in yours. But until Jesus takes the log out of my eye, I'm not even seeing your speck clearly. It's, it's distorted. In our ever-increasing search for liberty on our own, pushing God to the sidelines, living only from a truth-in-here perspective and not from a truth-in-here perspective, is it any wonder why we're hitting the dead end of legalism? Has anyone noticed how much you have to perform these days to fit in? Don't you long for unity of the Spirit, being in community, not having to fix and heal everybody, trusting that God is at work to fix and to heal? You know, disunity in us is in our power trying to fix everyone and everyone trying to change you. That will not create community. That will create chaos. Sometimes we can live outraged by the sin of others, but I don't know if we're humbled by the presence of sin in our own lives. The line between accountability and canceling can become real blurry and we can exchange grace and truth for shame and shun, which leaves fewer and fewer pathways for anyone to experience redemption. Tim Keller says, the postmodern view sees all injustice as happening on a human level and so demonizes human beings rather than recognizing the evil forces at work through all human life, including our own. Adherents of this view also end up being utopian. 
they see themselves as saviors rather than recognizing an only true divine savior will ever finally be able to bring justice. Do we trust Jesus's ways lead to truth? Or do we need alternative saviors to lead us to freedom? It's a great question. Yes. Let's look at the life of Peter just for a moment as we begin to wrap up today. Peter is this incredible follower of Jesus, but he isn't without sin. And we see in Luke 22 that Jesus shares a final meal with his disciples on his way to the cross. And Jesus tells Peter to watch out because the enemy wants to sift him. You know, friends, the enemy wants to sift you. He wants to sift you from the purposes of God in your life. But you have a loving Savior who is there to bring conviction and correction and leadership and to show you the way if you're willing to see the way. Peter doesn't see himself as Jesus sees him. Peter chooses in this moment to define himself by his own truth, not by Jesus's. Jesus warns him at the table, and Peter responds and says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus, I will give you my very life. And that may be true, but there is something standing in the way of Peter being able to step into the fullness of his calling, but he's unwilling or unable to hear Jesus' warning to him in this moment. At this moment, there is a deception. Peter isn't yet who he believes himself to be. And rather than trust Jesus, who is truth, he defines his own reality by going his own way. He denies Jesus three times just as Jesus warned him that he would. Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. This is the moment where Peter owns his sinful nature, his weakness. He faces the truth of what Jesus warned him about, and he repents. Peter was confronted with the reality of who he is versus who he wants to be. And Jesus gives Peter the truth about who he is, but leads him on a pathway of redemption and restoration. You see, sin shows up in three different ways in our life. The first one is falling short. We see in Romans 3.23, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's only one who is holy. There's only one who is righteous, and it's Jesus. And as Jason just said, we are brothers and sisters, one with another. And I want you just to look around this room. And if you're online, I want you to look around at the people on the chat. Just take a look, move your head around, look at the person sitting beside you, around you, behind you. And I want you to reflect on, yes, they have fallen short, but you have equally fallen short. And when Jesus looks at every single one of us, he makes a way for every single one of us. So we don't have to look with a scoreboard. We actually don't have to compare our sin to somebody else's because the reality is that God levels the playing field. We are all in need of a savior because we have all fallen short. Another form of sin is transgression, and that's crooked behavior. That is, that is not following in the ways that God has outlined in his word. He, he's very specific about how he wants us to live, and when we break his ways, we transgress. And the last one is trespass against one another. 
It's the ways that we hurt one another in relationship. It's the ways that we're judgmental to one another. It's when we hold unforgiveness or bitterness or resentment. We trespass against one another. But ultimately, as we sin against one another, we sin against God. Ignatius of Loyola said this very powerful quote that I want you to reflect on for a moment. He said, sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only for my deepest happiness. If we really, really believe this in the core of our being, that what God has for us is for our deepest happiness, our deepest good, our deepest fulfillment, our struggle with sin would not be so difficult. But again and again, we're deceived into thinking that somehow God is holding out on us, and we have to make our own way. We have to try things our own way. The final thing that Jesus said before ascending into heaven was that we as followers of Jesus need to be filled with a different kind of power, the power of the Spirit, because the truth is we cannot overcome the power of sin in our own strength. So the Holy Spirit does this in a couple of ways. In John 16, 8, it says, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the Holy Spirit was sent to help us, to convict us of our sin, because we have blinders on. We can't see it for ourselves. But we must take time with the Holy Spirit. We must sit and listen and ask and wait for that conviction to come so that we can be made right. Another thing that the Holy Spirit does in John 14, 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. We need the Holy Spirit to bring revelation of Jesus. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the truth that is in God's word. We need the help of the Holy Spirit for this to become alive inside of us. And that is exactly what he does when we invite him and we ask him. And so as we prepare to close, a couple of points to recap. We must trust that Jesus is trustworthy and ultimately leading us into truth. That freedom is not found out here, but that Jesus actually wants to bring true freedom to our hearts and our lives in here regardless of what is going on out here. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, wrote it from prison. He was physically not free, but he was one of the freest believers we could ever read or teach as he has taught us about this in the scriptures. Sure, we can be troubled and may be troubled about the sin that is going on in the world, but can we be equally, if not more troubled, by the sin that is taking place inside of us? If only this could take our focus, I think the entire world would be a different place. And in Jesus, we can find both accountability and redemption. He wants to make us new. Remember what Peter said before he denied Jesus. I'm ready to go with you both in prison or death. I will give you my life, Jesus. And at this moment, Peter wasn't who he thought he was, but in love, Jesus fully restored him. And this was the very same Peter that preaches at Pentecost, that sees the church established, and he ends up in love, not in anger or hate, giving his very life for Christ. He was right. He was that person, but he wasn't there yet. Peter learns to trust Jesus, 
as the most significant authority in his life. And authority is an interesting word, and it is formed by the word author. Who is the author of your life? Who is the authority in your life? Do you see what Jesus sees when he looks at you? Ultimately, God, the author and the finisher of our faith, is working out his purposes in our life, and they are for our good. But God's good plans for us and our good plans for us can be very different based on the inner desires that are at war within us and the larger purposes that God has unfolding in our lives. His good for us does include hardship and suffering and denying ourselves in order to receive new resurrection life. And so the question we leave you with today is, who are you trusting to be the authority in your life? Will you choose to trust the author of life? And so let's just put our hands out in front of us like this. And we're just going to take a second. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to go quiet, and then we're all going to pray together. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You're welcome in this house. You are always welcome in this house. Where do you desire to convict us? Maybe individually or collectively today. Speak to our hearts right now, we pray. Together, let's pray and say, Dear Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. Forgive us of our sin heal our hearts. Help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.